This is an ABC podcast. Family photos weren't a big thing when Roland Breckwalt was growing up, but there is one of him aged about four. He's standing at the edge of a rock above Lake Parramatta, wearing a straw cowboy hat and holding a long rope looped in one hand and a lasso noose in the other. Roland fell in love with the idea of being a cowboy and with horses right back then as a little kid. And as soon as he could, at just 15, he left Sydney and headed way up north to the Queensland Gulf Country. On the vast cattle stations there, he worked as a ringer, catching bullocks by the tail, sleeping in a swag under the stars, and working out who he was in the midst of some eccentric characters and the majesty and extremity of the outback. His memoir of that time is called The New Ringer. Hi, Roland. Hello. Roland, this love of horses, as I say, goes way back. It was a big part of your childhood. Tell me how you first got to know a man named Arthur and his stallion, Lordly. Yes, well, Robbie McCann and I used to make our way down to a dam where we caught carp and threw them all back until we got some goldfish. (laughs) And we walked past this little shack, a worms shack, a two-room shack that we used to walk past. And there was this very unusual man in jodhpurs with a moustache and a bit of a military look. And we were terrified of him. We, we circled widely. But one day we, we went past and he said hello and we said hello and he invited us in. And it was an amazing scene. He, had, he was occupied the kitchen where he had a a couch and it cooked and everything. And next door, this giant stallion, this 17-hand stallion, lived... <laughs> Not next, next door, to... like in the next right, room, yeah, yes? in the next room, yeah. <laughs> he used to stick his head out and talk to us lordly. And um, we became such firm friends, you know. We were there all the time, so all why, the time, every weekend. So why was this stallion living in the cottage with Arthur? Well, see, Arthur and lordly had a... A wonderful life, you see. Arthur used to travel around with Lordly all around Sydney as far as Cowra. In fact, he was known as the Gypsy Breeder and he'd go wherever there were mares, you see. So they had a wonderful um, symbiotic relationship. Arthur collected the stud fees and Lordly had infinite female variety. So... um, (laughs) Quite the life for life. both of them. Both of them, yeah. And, and how would you and your mates spend your time oh, when look, you were hanging out with them? Making jaffles and listening to endless, endless Slim Whitman and um, others on the on his wind-up radio hmm. over and over again. So, And then making jaffles and talking to Arthur. So it was just great, yeah. Your parents wouldn't let you get your own horse... But your father was very experienced with horses. He'd been in the German cavalry in the First World War. Why was he awarded the Iron Cross? Well, what he told me was on the Russian front as a forward scout and he was able to cross this river to get to the other side to see his enemy positions. But getting back, he was cut off. So he had to go along the river and he came to this iron trestle bridge, you know, just just the sleepers and nothing else because it only had to carry a railway and no, no vehicles. And he figured that if he tried to lead his horse across, it wouldn't be all sort of keyed up and attentive. 
So he rode his horse across, stepping from frozen sleeper to frozen sleeper. Mm. Now, I believe that now because I know, I know that a horse will do things with a rider on it that it won't do otherwise. So I know that, but for that he was, he was awarded the Iron Cross and he was greatly promoted. And that's the reason when uh, the Third Reich became, started to militarise and Hitler started coming to power, that that was one reason that he left Germany. He wasn't going to fight another war. The other reason, though, was your yes. mother. Uh, <laughs> how, how had they met each other? Well, this is, this is if you think about it, um, it takes a little bit of working out, but people will get on this very quickly. My father fell in love with his wife's doctor's daughter, who was 19 years his junior, and they eloped and my father left his wife and his two children, the boy Helmut and his daughter Gisa, and eloped with my mother. Um, he wasn't yet divorced, so they lived in sin when it was a sin <laughs> in, um, in Shanghai. In Shanghai? And, what, yeah. what were they doing there? Oh, the Germans have this sort of love-hate relationship many of them with um, order on one side and then the sort of diversity and wilderness and difference on the other, which is, of course, why so many people like Australia. German people have come to Australia, and for other reasons. But um, So there was a big German community in Shanghai. There was a Jewish community, an English community and a big German community. And that was the they were the glory years for my parents. They were the absolute glory glory years. Are there photos of them from that time? There's the, a beautiful photograph of my mother, which was probably on the wedding day, because just under it is the imprint of the of the photographer there, and others of them in their in their riding gear. <laughs> and so my love of horses, you know, it's interesting these days with more information coming about genetics and how much of our behaviour is actually environmentally determined, mine, you know, growing up at North Rocks and horses everywhere and I couldn't have one, but also that genetic aspect of my father early and my mother, um, my mother's family had a, a big farm at, uh, in Schleswig-Holstein in Germany. So they were living there together and, and managed to get married in yeah. Shanghai. How did things change for them once Japan invaded China? Yeah, well, it's, they had to get out. Um, this, this, I have photographs of um, bomb craters in, the, in Bubbling Wells Road where they lived. And ironically enough, um, the safest, being Caucasians, the safest place was Japan. <laughs> what <laughs> so did they do go. there? What, what were they doing for work? Well, my father got um, part-time work um, repairing temples. He was also he was an architect but also had quite strong building skills. So there and, and there... I don't know how the meeting took place, but my father met a Mr McFarlane. I don't know if my father had a deliberate meeting with him or just met him, but he went home that night to my mother. They were, they were going to go to Argentina, you see. That's, that's the only place they knew. But they met this Mr McFarlane. My father went home that night to my mother and said, if they're all like that, we're going to go to Australia. <laughs> Seriously, one person. <laughs> well, what, how had Mr McFarlane behaved? What, what had he done to make such an impression on know, your dad? I don't know. I, I, I don't know, and I've, I've tried to find out, but I, there's, nothing, there's nothing available. And, um, but, you know, was he tall, charismatic, or just a, just a good bloke? Maybe I don't he, was, know. he was just he kind was or encouraging. Yeah. Maybe, yeah. 
So they, mm. they came, your mother and father then came to Australia yeah. in early 1938 and yeah. then, of course, uh, war breaks out and, and Australia mm. is at war yeah. with Germany. What mm. happened on Christmas Eve 1941? Well, it started coming to a head when the mini-subs um, attacked Sydney Harbour. Japan bombed Pearl Harbour and not long after the mini-subs made their attack on Sydney Harbour. And, you know, that was early... It was early December 1941. So then the tempers and um, attitudes really hardened towards alien people. And my father, you had to, you know, you had to know him. He was interviewed by the security police on the, um, I think, the, the 20th of December. He was interviewed by them and they asked him, you know, went to Tate Tate and anything like that. They asked him whether he considered himself a good German. Well, you know, there was an easy way out of that. All he had to say was he hated Hitler, he hated the Third Reich, and he left in 1933 to get away from them. And that, all that was true. That's all he had to say. But instead, he made the point that having to be... being a good German was a precondition of being a good Australian. Like mm. he was talking about being a good person. But they, the security agents fixed on the good German. You and know, it's not those interviews on... are not the time for complexities no, of, points. <laughs> of national character. And, was, and sophistry, you know, entry, entry yes, sophistry. It's not, not Socratic dialogue, but just, yeah. no, I, of course I'm not a good German in that <laughs> sense. So bring us then to Christmas Eve. What happened? Yeah, it was Germans um, celebrate Christmas on Christmas Eve and there's a little ritual about the kids aren't allowed to see the Christmas tree and the presents and then... As the Christmas candles are being lit, my parents burst into song with the German carol, you know, Come All You Children. And um, seriously, they just burst into song when the door burst open in their flat at Bondi and he was arrested. He was let out on Christmas Eve, yeah. Mm. So there you go. So he was taken to an internment camp in the outskirts of Sydney first Yeah, Holdsworthy, and... Holdsworthy. was still an internment camp based from the First World War, so he was held there, yeah. And And your mum was left alone in this flat in Bondi mm. with your big sister who was just a, a toddler or so at the she time. She was three years, of, three years of age and remembers the Christmas Eve incident very well, of course. And yeah. so, so what did your mum decide to do? Ah, oh, look, she she looked at every possibility, but in the end, she sort of decided she she wanted to be for Angela's sake and her sake to be in the internment camp. So, she went and um, saw the police, the security police, and said she wanted to be interned. And and my mother was a pretty highly strung person, and when she when she threw a tantrum, it was it was true tantrum. So the security um, police wouldn't have argued too much. They didn't think. argue. They could sense it all coming. They could see it all coming. So they said, yep, OK. So they went They went into the internment camp and then from there we moved to Tatura. Tatura was chosen in Western Victoria because it was a long way from the coast, harder for people to escape, and, of course, it had extremely good water supplies. So that's why Chatura in Victor Western Victoria was chosen. So you were actually born while your parents were still in this internment camp in February 1944. How yeah. did your mum later describe the, the consequences of that? <laughs> well, my mother and father always said, we wanted you born in Chatura so you'd be born an Australian. So I thought I'd been taken out of the internment camp and born in a hospital in Chatura. 
But recently when I went down there to speak to people in Tatura, which was a great thrill, of course, to go to Tatura to speak, place of my birth, they took me around to all the old prison camps and we worked out that I was indeed born inside, mm. behind barbed wire, as my mother... Um, that I was born in Waranga Prison Camp, Waranga Prison Hospital in Camp Number 1, which is about 13 or 14 kilometres from Camp Number 3 where they lived. So my mother must have been transported there to a bigger hospital in the camp, and I was born... So I was, in fact, born in the prison camp. So when I was... Whenever I was young, I was a bit of a wild child at times and I used to get in trouble with the neighbours for all sorts of reasons. And when they complained to my mother, my mother would always say, poor boy, he can't help it, he was born behind barbed wire. <laughs> <laughs> and I can see now it was an excuse for me, but it was also a very convenient excuse for her. <laughs> or maybe some truth to it, who knows? Who I knows, think there Roland? could have been. I think there could have been. Now I think about it, maybe she was just having a bit of a dig back at them, mm. that, you know, she mm. had been in an internment camp. I think of all those things now, <laughs> possibilities. After your family were, were released, where did you head next? Well, I let my father out on May the 14th, 1945. Um, he was allowed out on parole and he checked out some of his, all his former people he'd worked with and the bank manager who'd supported them when they first came out um, connected him with a Dr Wern who had a huge estate at North Rocks where, in fact, Lordly and had some cottages on it. And my father managed to get one of those cottages on the basis that he fixed it up um, and repaired it and painted it and got free rent. So he went there for three three months and then we all joined him at what would have been 15 months of age. It was uh, it was part of a piggery. It was on the... On the yeah, and what did, your, what did your mum say about this oh, new home? <laughs> well, you see, my father um, was terrified about bringing her, bringing her there because they both came from very wealthy families in Germany, but they were, although they were both estranged on account of the elopement, but um, he was terrified. But when she arrived, she says, I like this bloody place, <laughs> um, which was very typical of my mother. She really wanted to fit in. My father didn't ever try to fit in, really. He couldn't. But my mother was very gregarious um, and made a real attempt mm. to get on with everybody. And, um, yeah, she, my mother was a very successful person. So they went about then building uh, your father, with your help, built your yeah. own home to move into. What stands out in your mind? What are your memories when you think back to what that place looked uh, like or felt like? Oh, uh, look, um, pretty good memories, but you have to take into account I was my father's slave. Um, I really was. He used to inveigle me to go by telling me we'd catch lizards and stuff under the sheets of a fibro. But um, if I'm a bit slow talking or a bit slow on the uptake, you'll know it was all the red lead paint and the stuff that I was painting the house Goodness. with. And, um, yeah, look, you know, and cutting cutting fibro, cutting fibro with these big, you know, old fibro cutters, cutting it into shape. So between the three-year-old Roland and my, and my 55-year-old father. He was 52 when I was born, but he did it. It was a tiny little place, tiny what little... What was place. unusual about what was inside? It's incredible, really, that even in all that disruption, he bought a lot of very valuable antiques and furniture from from China and Japan, they got to Australia. I don't know who the good Samaritan was who stored them and looked after them while they were interned. There's somewhere along the line, there's, 
is that there is a person or persons I don't know who must have very kindly stored a huge amount of furniture. So it all came out. The house inside was quite nice, <laughs> but small. A little fibro shack full of priceless yeah, Japanese yeah, and Chinese yeah, antiques. Yeah, we still, I still have them. We still all have them all, yeah. Did, yeah. did the family speak German at home, Roland? Yes, unfortunately, yeah. But fortunately now, because any poor German tourist that comes with any shot gets, a, gets me practising my German... But, um, yeah, look, my father tolerated no English at all and um, at home. And, um, and why was that unfortunate at the time? Oh, look, I wanted to fit in. I was a kid. I was a child. I wanted to be Australian. I, I hated my name. Can you imagine, can you imagine a one-day-old baby called Roland Johannes Breckwald? Can you, <laughs> can you picture that? So I, I hated my name. I wish they'd call me Brad or Russell or... And, and the fact that your family were German, I mean, I guess this was a time when there were so many European immigrants post-war coming to Australia, but was there a different tang with the fact that your, your name was German and your family were German? Oh, yeah. Look, there were, there were, there were boundaries. At North Rocks at that time, of course, now it's a highly dense suburbanised area, but it was all bush and there was just one, one road called North Rocks Road and the odd avenue off it. Ours was Statham Avenue. But the first subdivisions were happening and the first sort of middle-class commuters were buying the little blocks of land that were allowed to be subdivided along North Rocks Road. So there were returned soldiers amongst them and who, you know, hated Germans and there were there were people who were related to people who'd been killed in the war and everything like that. So there was a there was a bit of a social boundary, but the bush held no boundaries. And um, so I did f- make friends with a couple of kids, Robbie McCann. The McCann family was very friendly towards us. She had a sister who was married to an Italian who'd been a prisoner of war, so they they were more empathetic towards us. And I had my friends. I was, you know, probably inherited some of my mother's gregariousness, so I, I made friends fairly easy. So within that social boundary, the bush became... The bush became... Well, it had no boundaries, so mm. that, that became sort of my home. You, you also made friends with creatures from the bush, particularly lizards. Where did you keep your bearded dragon? <laughs> well... I, I kept it under my jumper because... Um, <laughs> Do you get, then, get spiky, rolling, yeah, uh, no, comfortable no, bearded no, dragons? And... No, but look, I, I had all sorts of pets. <laughs> Funnily enough, my father was a distant authoritarian man, but my sister told me, he never told me this, but my sister Angela, who's seven years older than I am, told me that when he was a child, his very, very strict, very wealthy industrialist parents... He came home with three white mice the kid had given him at school and his parents made him drown them in the jar. Oh, gosh. So while my father was not a mentor towards my animal collecting, he didn't stop me, and I think that's the reason. So I collected everything you could possibly imagine, and he never stopped me. He didn't, he didn't help me, he didn't sort of make cage, help me make cages or anything, but he never said no to anything that I brought home. Didn't make you take the lizard out from under your jumper? No, no, and to snakes, and I had little snakes and all sorts of things as a kid, yeah. Your yeah. mum wasn't always as tolerant towards animals. What happened at the koala enclosure on a family visit <laughs> to Taronga Zoo, Roland? Oh, my, my, my parents used to embarrass me all the time. I, I mean, I... I, I I think that's part of growing up, isn't it? I think it, it is. I think, yep. But my parents were 
was super. They were, they were really <laughs> to the next skilled degree. At it, you know. <laughs> My father speaking German about you know 120 decibels in the in the bus just to show he was a proud German. It would have me crawling under the seat, but. My mother, we went to the zoo, you see, and the, the koalas and the, that day were on this concrete floor and they had um, forked sticks holding their eucalypt leaves, but they were all, they were all um, dozing. They'd all, they were all drunk on, on eucalypt leaves and they were sound asleep, trying to sleep off their hangover from <laughs> eucalypt leaves, sound asleep. And my mother hadn't travelled all the way from North Rocks on the train to Central and then the, and then the Wynyard and then the ferry across to see dozing koalas. So she, there was this pile of bricks nearby where they'd been repairing the... trying to repair the um, enclosure. So she got this half brick. There's all these people standing around looking. She got this half brick and aimed at one of these dozing koalas. Well, it didn't go high enough, of course, to do it, but hit the fork and then rattled across the floor and people... So she were... tried to peg the brick at the koala itself? No, not, not the really a koala, but just create some just noise and mayhem to make it wake it up, yeah. <laughs> oh, and people, I shouldn't laugh, people... but I can imagine your horror as a oh, child. my horror, and, and people around staring at her and sort of <laughs> coughing and, and, and telling her that she was irresponsible and, oh, dear, oh, dear, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you, you left school young at 14 and were working first off as a lab technician, which is a job that your, your father got you at the University of Sydney. But then a letter arrived in January 1960 that set you on a completely new path. Who was it from? That was from my stepbrother, Helmut, one of the ones my father left behind. So here's the futility of war, isn't it? Up till 1945, Australians and the Allies were shooting the Germans and they were shooting back. They were beating each other up, right? Then after the war, there was a massive lack of labour and there weren't enough 10-pound poms taking up the issue. So by 1950, the gate was open to Germans to come to Australia to help nation-building. Now, isn't that crazy? Mm. Isn't it just so crazy? So my brother was on the first trip, so I was nine and he was 28 when he first came out in 1953. He came out in the first, the first, one of the first ships to Australia and he came out and I thought, he, I thought the world of him. <laughs> and then he was indentured to work and he worked at the building the Waleroing power station just outside Lithgow. And... I think there was some surplus materials there that he offered to get for my father, but I think there was some transport costs involved in getting it there. My father refused to pay them. They had an almighty row, and then all of a sudden he disappeared out of my life. And my parents, I lived in the, I lived in the classic nuclear family where all emotions were dangerous, and nothing was said, nothing was said. He just was there one day and gone the next. But all of a sudden a letter arrived from Helmut. It was just after Christmas. A letter arrived from Helmut. Um, he'd obviously wanted to make peace or make contact again. And my father must have been pleased because he read the letter out. And it just, he was a builder in Monto. They had a corner store in Monto, which Gwen, his wife... This um, is in, up in Queensland. Yeah, in Queensland, central, in central Queensland. And he just happened to say that one of the jobs he was doing at the moment was building a homestead and a cattle station. My decision was instant. Um, I'm not exaggerating. I'm not exaggerating here. It was instant. I just wrote to him that, that night and said, I'm coming. 
this was going to be your great chance to go and work with horses out on a on a station. How do you remember feeling setting off on this great adventure on the train, saying goodbye to you, to your mum and dad? I felt fantastic. I, I felt absolutely wonderful. Um, I'd bought myself a great big three hundred three twenty five rifle, huge thing. Well, it was, was just on as, the train with you? Yeah, I had, yeah, those were the days. Yeah, to, on the train next to me, you know, uncovered. I might have had it. Might have had it. In a, I did have it in a, in a rifle carrying case through. Um, but yeah, in those days, yeah, no trouble at all. But. My mother had, was driving by then. My father never drove. She had an old bomb singer with the two seats in the front and the Dixie seat behind. They opened like a boot, you know, and you could sit in there. So I sat in there and my, just my mum and dad and me. And um, when we got on the train at Granville to go into Central with my father, it was the only time in my whole life that I remember him saying something warm or tender towards my mother. He said, son, he said, he said Holland, um, wave wave goodbye, make sure you wave goodbye to your mother. And I did. But, you know, I, th- I feel I get teary about it these mm. days. I wonder what she was thinking, what they were thinking, you know. You're listening to Conversations with Sarah Konoski. Hear more conversations anytime on the ABC Listen app. Or go to abc.net.au slash conversations. So, Roland, you arrived in Monto in central Queensland where your German half-brother was living with his wife Gwen, who ran the local corner store. How did you go about getting your first job as a ringer? Ken Rawlinson, the richest man in Monto, you would not know it. He got around on a bicycle and um, shorts and scrawny, <laughs> scrawny little man on a, on a bike. And he was a money lender and insurance agent and came to the shop Gwen shop to give insurance and Gwen introduced me and and told him what I wanted to do and he said well if he wants a job on a cattle station you should go and see Sam Nugent. Now Sam Nugent was a butcher in Monto by now but his son Leon he'd been overseer on Augustus Downs up in the Gulf of Carpentaria when his son Leon there was killed in a horse accident. You know it took me 50 years to work out that I got my first job as as a result of a horse fatality. I never put two and two together, but then I started thinking about it. But, but Sam Nugent kindly wrote to the manager of Augustus Downs and the rest is history. Mm. He wrote, the manager wrote back and said, we'll give you a start and off I went. So you travelled out there first by train to Concurry and then out by, by plane. What did it look like from the air, this, oh, this station? Look- the station, well, the first station we stopped at was Camilroy, which was owned by Australian Estates, an English company. It was just looked immaculate. It was wonderful. And I thought, oh, gee, Augustus Downs is going to be even better than that. But when I arrived there, it wasn't. It was owned by Kidman and Brodie, the great cattle king Kidman um, and Brodie, who were um, cattle dealers in Cloncurry. 
and they put, didn't put any price on aesthetics. I do. <laughs> Everything was functional, corrugated iron. My heart sank, but um, of course I adapted pretty quickly. You were employed as a ringer. There were no yep. motorbikes or helicopters no. in use on stations back then. All the mustering was, was done by horse, and you'd yep. loved horses as a kid, but how much experience had you had actually riding them? I'd never ridden a horse before. I'd never, never sat on a horse before I went to Augustus Downs. Isn't that amazing? <laughs> Baptism of fire. How, how did you learn? Who taught you? What oh, happened? They, they were pretty good. I mean, there was no, there was no tutorials. There's some colourful language, but <laughs> there's this, there's the myth, you know, that they kid the, the new chum onto the station, buck jumper, but they, one look at me, they, they, they knew that wasn't going to work. Um, but you know, I was given a saddle, given a bridle, given, you know, had a saddle bag on one side and a quart pot on the other. And um, luckily they gave me a very small saddle with small knee pads, which was great because I learnt balance and, you know, instead of grip and that. They, and, you know, got a bit of a tutorial in the yard once or twice and then after that it was being shouted at. And the shouting was was or made me learn really quick I wasn't going to, I knew I was at the bottom of the rung but I wasn't I knew I was, wasn't going to stay there very long I was going to work my way out from under the bottom of the rung but it had nothing to do with occupational health and safety you know it had to do with not being a nuisance you know if you if you were 70 kilometers out from the the homestead at one of the far cattle camps and you got hurt in a horse you know you're a real nuisance <laughs> So nothing, nothing whatsoever to do about my welfare. <laughs> it was all to do, all to do, all to do with um, not creating mayhem by having a bad accident way out in the camp somewhere. So how, yeah. How does a good stockman hold himself in the in the saddle? Ah, oh, they're pretty good. You know, it's a bit of a pretty good. They were good riders. They were, you know, there were no chicken wings, arms flapping out, hands always low near the pommel, and. Um, standing up, three-point riding all the time, you know, standing up in the stirrups, trotting to cover long distances, you know, taking your weight off the, off the you know, the rear of the horse is the, is the motor and the front feet are the, the shock absorbers. And so, stand, you know, taking your weight off the, the rump, standing up in the arms forward, travelling long distances, trotting, if you had to. So, yeah, they were good riders, really good riders. And uh, what was the kind of correct attitude to have towards your horse, what was the right way to treat these animals you were working uh, with? Look, I never, I only once later on another station saw a, a person who wasn't a good horseman mistreating a horse by jerking its mouth around, but you never blamed the horse. I never, ever heard anyone blame a horse. I mean, you might be, there are plenty of times we were frightened, you know, plenty of times I was restless at night knowing, oh, geez, I've got to ride Pasha tomorrow morning. Oh, my goodness, you know. And you couldn't dodge them, you know. I, I had, by my second year there, I had 16 horses in my string. The day I arrived there, I had six horses. That was hard, That was pretty hard for them to find six quiet horses. There were 300 working horses and to find six that were suitable for a new chum like me. Um, was pretty hard, but I worked my way out of those. And by the time my second year there, I had 16 horses, and and you couldn't dodge a tough horse. They'd sort of, people you'd be in the yards and drafting the horses, and someone would say, "Oh, quite a while since I've seen you on Pasha Riley. Um, <laughs> um, 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 do you think you should take him this time?" And I said, "Oh, my heart is sick. Yeah, take." <laughs> but it was know. never the horse's fault, hey? It was always never, up to the rider. Never blame the horse. Never blame the horse. I never. I that 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 was sort of. It wasn't spoken, but it was the golden rule. You know, if you couldn't get a horse to do something, it was your fault, not the horse's fault. 
The station was your base. How often would you be away, though, at different bush camps? What was the oh, rhythm of that? Oh, most of the year. So we'd be away for a month and then we'd collect steers and bring them back. There were three paddocks on Augustus Downs. They reached 60 square miles. Um, there's a bullock paddock, a spade cow paddock. That's a cow that's been sterilised, a spade cow. A spade cow paddock, a steer paddock and a bullock paddock. But the rest was all was one big run. A lot of it wasn't fenced. Where was your favourite place to camp Oh, at? Dis- Disraeli by far. It was way back high in the Ironstone Range country. What was special about it? Oh, it's stunning. On the crystal clear sandy creek, in the, you know, we'd ride out in the morning and sometimes we'd be riding along the river in the early morning and the crocodiles would be out getting an early morning sunbake and then you'd he- I'd hear this plop, you know, as one plopped into the water as we rode along and then it, you could see the water lilies swaying as it's swimming out and then it'd come to the surface, just two eyes and a snout looking out and... Um, yeah, it was a wonderful place mm. and the, the reptiles and and um, a beautiful place. And what was your sleeping set up out on camp? It rolled a swag out on just a rolled a swag out because it was the dry season and the cook had a fly, um, you know, a bit of canvas over a, a stretched over a, a bow um, held up between two fork posts. Um, every camp had that, and every camp had a basic set of yards for. Um, for the horses, just very basic, just two yards where you could draft the daily horses. Um, and to get back to your earlier question, so we'd be out like that for a month and then we'd bring the steers into the station, change horses, maybe spend three or four days at the station. We might kill there, you know, so there'd be station meat and then exchange horses, maybe do some work in the steer paddock for a week and then out you'd go mm. again for another month. You mentioned the cook there, Roland. A popular <laughs> breakfast was burdekin duck. What's this delicacy? <laughs> um, corned beef in batter. Oh. <laughs> that's, that's, the, that's the bush humour, you know. <laughs> We're having burdekin duck for breakfast, yeah. <laughs> so out of, out of the camps, you're there mustering cattle. How did you go about it? What's the process? If you imagine a football team, the owners, Kidman Brody, own the team. There's the management, there's the management of the team and then there's the captain coach. So the head stockman was sort of captain coach, although you'd probably call him more captain than coach, you know. And we were the, we were the players and you'd act, it was something like that. It was, we were also um, very strong on teamwork. You know, we didn't have any weekend getaways at luxury hotels to talk about team building and bonding and everything like that. But it was never spoken You to. old bush cynic, Roland. <laughs> but but um, no, no... I, in, in, in a sense, I'm not because it was just part of the part of the deal. You know, you, no 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 one person can manage a thousand head of cattle on their own, and it has to be a pretty smooth operation. So, of a morning, we'd draft out a morning horse. That was a horse that might buck a bit, like my friend Pasha or other horses. So there was a little yard there you could get on them, and everyone would stand around and watch you get on the horse that hadn't been ridden for a, a year. Um, and some horses wouldn't be, you know, because um, there were 300 working horses and some horses might only get ridden once or twice a year, used once or twice a year. And then you'd draft out a, a dinner horse. Uh, that's a horse that had to be quieter, be able to catch out in the open. So the head stockman say, Joe, you take the horses out to Goose Lagoon and we'll meet you there. So Joe would head off with the, the afternoon horses to a predetermined spot. 
and then we'd all ride out far out wide, mostly walk out, do a bit of trotting right far out and then muster into that spot and then pick up cattle on the way back. So it was full on. Not all of those, uh, not all of that cattle are willing to be herded up. What do you do if when there's um, a bullock that doesn't want to come in? What's the approach? Uh, that, that happened up the top end where there were... So it was a self-fulfilling prophecy. There were very few cattle up in the top end in those ironstone ridges and those long sandy gullies, scrubby gullies between the ridges. There were very few cattle, so we didn't go up there very often. And in, in other words, the cattle were always pretty wild and, um, and you'd try and muster them and you'd get a little mob together that had been mustered before and they'd become the coaches. But then as you tried to get other cattle in and they couldn't, you couldn't get them in... Yes, they were thrown and it was a... And what it, do you mean thrown? How do you well, throw a, well, it's, a massive beast like that? It's what? easier than you think because... <laughs> but there's a bit of it. There's a trick to it. It is easier than you think. There's two ways. There's, there's horsebacking, but it takes two people. That's very simple. You just gallop along behind it. The one horse, horse person in front leans over, grabs the tail and then all of a sudden goes at 90 degree angle and the beast topples over. The person behind jumps off and once you lift up the hind leg, the beast is pretty is helpless. I'm going to pretty, trust yeah. you that that's simple because it yeah. doesn't sound simple. One no, of you grabs simple. the tail and pulls it and the other one comes from behind and holds its leg up. Yeah, it jumps off. <laughs> jumps off and holds the leg up, yeah. And then the other bike gets off and it's... Look, it's, yeah, that, is, that is the most... Um, easiest way. The well, other no way... trouble picking up my cat, so I just can't, <laughs> I can't believe it's not well, simple. But anyway, I'll you trust try you. It. You try it. Um, <laughs> but so the other way, and um, we all did it, was to, if a beast broke off, you chase it um, flat out, perhaps for two or three hundred metres, full gallop, till the beast gets tired and it turns around and starts charging the horse. And um, then you just hold your horse back a bit you know, four or five metres, and it stops. The beast will stop there, decide to make an escape, and as it does, you jump off your horse, run up behind and grab it by the tail. Um, <laughs> Again, is that bit, you just grab it by the tail? Was it tail. terrifying uh, or exhilarating? No, 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 just did it. No, it wasn't either. It was just part of what we did. Just job, just work. No, just job, yeah. And um, then, of course, the beast turns around to try and charge you, but as it does, as it lifts one leg off the ground, you pull that tail and flip it and it comes over. You hold it up, leg up, put the bull strap on it. We all wore bull straps um, around our chest and ride back. The trick is you've got to know, know where it was. When you <laughs> go back and get it. But, um, but Les Cockrell, one of the head stockmen, he wore three bull belts and he could throw three, <laughs> three cattle and he'd know exactly where they were and we'd all go back and get them. I could only throw one, but... Um, was it something that took a while to learn or is it just once no, you do it, you got it? No, you just... Look, didn't happen in my first six or seven months there, right? But as I got stronger mm. and as I became part of the team, you know, I started doing it. So it wasn't something I did from day one, right? Explain to me why it was you had to take shifts staying up with the cattle at night. Well, because... The old cowboy f films in America where you had 30 head stampeding are based on, are based on fact and um, cattle that are at the beginning of their time on the road, once they've been, once they've been droved, once they've been gone for a, on the road for a week or two, they settle down. But you imagine that the spade cows as they fattened, the ones that have been sterilised and 
the steers as they grow up go into the bullock paddock. And then from the bullock paddock, they become stake. They travel from Augustus Downs to the railhead, a droving from Augustus Downs to Kajabi, which is about 110 miles in those days, I think, so perhaps 150, 60 kilometres, and a 10-day trip to Kajabi. So when you get them together for the first time, they're held in a big wire yard, which is not very secure, huge, just a wire yard with posts. And you've got to go around and sing. If you weren't into singing, you could tell poetry, but what, you had what to... What do you mean? Why have you got to sing or recite because, poetry? So there's no surprises about noise. If a wallaby or something comes <laughs> charging along and hits the fence and spooks them, so you've got to make a noise. You can't just ride around silently and pretend you're not there. And you're just getting them used to that sound Getting them used to being on the road, quieting Mm -hmm. them down there. So it takes about three days. We'd have them in a wire yard, and one night they rushed there, and it's it's horrific. I I wasn't on watch uh, at the time, but um, they broke off coolie bar posts, the thickness of telephone posts, you know. They just broke them off at the ground level, about four posts broken, and those those steers that hit those posts, you know, were injured and had to be shot, but the rest just went bang and we had to muscle them all again the next day. On those nights that you were there on night shift, riding around under the stars, either singing or or mm. saying poetry, what, what was it like? Was it... Oh, it was lovely. Yeah, lovely. Just, yeah, just fabulous. Yeah, you know... <laughs> the cattle the cattle didn't criticise my voice at all. Um, it was lovely, you know. What's the saying? Sing as if nobody's listening. Um, <laughs> so, um, yeah, it was terrific. And uh, and then, of course, I was very, very lucky. It, um, towards the end of my first year, the drove was short. Logan Booth, short of a person. Someone hadn't turned up. So Reg Nissen, the station manager, um, allocated me to go on the droving trip. So I was very, very lucky. When the time came to hand the mob over, how were the, the animals counted? Well, I always thought, Jesus, they'd be within 10 or 20 mm. or something like that, but they were down to the, down to the exact number. They'd and count each individual Yeah, and animal. what happened was we'd, it was pretty to watch, actually. So we'd, all us ringers, eight and nine of us, would hold the, a big mob and then we'd run them between the manager and the drover who would be, had a, their own systems of counting, you know. They didn't have a, didn't have a pen and paper or anything. They used their fingers, you know, for tens and then they'd get to hundreds and they'd go trot the other hand to go to hundreds up to the thousands. Um, and then as if they were running too fast, then they'd close in together and so we'd then hold back, all hold back. Not a voice, not a word spoken. We just knew that we'd hold back and widen out so the cattle didn't go in so fast they're going too slow, we'd come in and push them a bit. And then on the other side, there'd be two or three other people holding them as they come out the other sounds, side. It sounds like a, a giant ballet or something. Oh, it was beautiful. Yeah, it was pretty Roland. to watch. And, yeah, and, it pretty... and it was silent because what these two men are counting in their yeah, heads yeah, to yeah, check yeah. they've got, they agree on the number. Yeah, yeah. So it was um, that sort of part of the, the teamwork, totally unspoken, you know, and um, so it was very nice, yeah. Could you pick up a radio stations out there? We did, and ABC was big, big in, in our lives. But it was mainly when Ken Pute was head stockman. So Ken, on a Saturday night, he had this old radio Bakelite. You don't come across it. It was early plastic, and it was it like had these varicose veins of paint all th- across it and everything like that. But on Saturday night, Ken would get out his old radio, 
and he had a long coil of plasticised wire. We'd tie a rock to it, he'd tie a rock to it, throw it up high over a branch and then fiddle with the tuner. We'd all pull our swags up, you know, half rolled and sit there and bing, we'd get ABC Longreach Country and Western Choice um, program. So, like, that requests was, coming in from yeah, other stations? Yeah, requests, yeah. And, you know, someone had... Someone had, from Dalganelli had write in and Ken would say, oh, yeah, he's one of my good mates. Oh, I know him, you know. <laughs> yeah, good mate, all right. You hadn't seen him for 20 years. When you, <laughs> but, you know, <laughs> that, was, that was the life. People came and went, you know. But but all of a sudden, you know, in that, in that vast, vast outback there we were, we were all connected, you know, connected right across the Gulf, right across into the Barclay Tableland, right down to western Queensland. We were all connected, all listening to our songs of unrequited love and drovers crossing flooded streams and children dying and, you know... All the, the country all the country music yeah, classics. The tear, did you all ever, the tearjackers, yeah. Did you ever write in, Roland? No, I didn't. Just listened, yeah, yeah. Important were Aboriginal stockmen to the life oh, of the station. Oh, they were critical, but one of my great regrets is that I didn't get to know them better. Is that but because people were it, it was lives were kept separate, apartheid? Uh, total apartheid. They had their own camp. They had their own sheds about 400 metres from us, little tin sheds. They came over to the kitchen with their plate and got served, whereas we sat at the dining table in camp. Um, they would come up with their plate to the camp and take it back to their camp. And, you know, I didn't get to know any of them, you know. It was just, it was just two different worlds, you know, and there was, no, there was no sort of teaching or learning about interacting with them or anything like that. They or were understanding the, their history, I'm imagining, or their ownership. Yeah, um, dreadful, dreadful. And um, I worked probably with one of the last of the Mingan people, old Davy a grand man who had an incredible history and um, worked alongside him. He, in fact, he, sat, he and Johnson, two Aborig- the other Aboriginal, saved my life. Tell me, what, tell me that story. What happened? Oh, that, well, I was, we were up the top end and everyone took off, off after cattle. I took after this young bull. You know, I was a bull about three years of age and a, a scrubber bull, you know, that had been uncastrated. He'd, he'd never been, not, never been branded, see, so... And, a scrubber bull that must, in the prime of his life, must have been at three years of age, you know, almost full adult bull, took off after him. And when he when he stopped, jumped off my horse, grabbed him by the tail, and I couldn't get him over. He just sort of stood there with both legs square on the ground, trying to, turning around, trying to horn me with his horn. So I got him at the very tip of the tail to get as much leverage as I could. And I pulled down and out, you know, to get him over and he just managed to get his horn under my leg and, mm. and up to my groin and throw me high in the air. And when, he, when I came down, he was grinding me with his horns into the dirt. And I thought, I literally, I thought it was all over. Seriously, I did. Um, and then all of a sudden, old Davy and Johnson rode up out of nowhere and rammed their horses into the bull and off he, he oh. took off and... I just walked up to my horse, got got on, and didn't even talk about it that night around the camp. It was just it wasn't even drama, you know, just just a day's work. <laughs> you ended up spending two years, two full mustering seasons at Augustus Downs, and then went on to another station in Western Queensland until you listened to your mother's pleading and uh, came back to Sydney and enrolled at Hawkesbury Agricultural College and ended up making a different kind of life for yourself. 
It's, it's funny how some years uh, matter more than others in our lives. You know, in the big scheme of your life, this time as a ringer was only a brief period. But <laughs> how significant when you look back over your life? Oh, well, look, I think a lot of people can remember those formative years of their life. It can shape the rest of your life. And, of course, it's shaped mine. I've, I'm still passionately interested in horses. I've got three horses of my own. I teach horse riding. I go riding down the snowy mountains. Um, I'm still passionately interested in horses and people and agriculture. Yeah, I live it in my head, I suppose, but in many ways the head is what um, the head shapes us, makes us do what we do, doesn't it? Sounds like it lives in your heart as well, Rob. <laughs> it does, yes. Thank you so much for being my guest on Conversations. Uh, my pleasure. Thank you. Roland Breckwalt was my guest on Conversations today and Roland's memoir about his time as a cowboy is called The New Ringer. Big thanks, as always, to the Conversations team, executive producer Carmel Rooney and producers this week, Meggie Morris and Tamar Kranswick. I'm Sarah Konoski. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to a podcast of Conversations with Sarah Kanoski. For more Conversations interviews, head to the website abc.net.au slash conversations. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.